Welcome to the Assurology Show, a growth hacker's guide to human capital management with your host, Mike Lenoir. Each week, we bring you experts in human resources, employment law, accounting, benefits planning, and more to build productive organizations. You'll gain practical guidance for your business. You'll be alerted to the latest news and megatrends that impact small and mid-sized companies. We'll give you the hands-on information you need to stay compliant with ever-changing employment laws, the strategies you need to win the war for talent, and much more. So you can focus on what you do best, growing your business. Enjoy the show. Compliance requirements for businesses over 50 employees. Hi, I'm Mike Van with Assure, and a really important topic today. Uh, most businesses want to grow, right? Uh, and if you think about uh, certain thresholds uh, as you grow your business, sometimes there are certain plateaus to get to and difficult to get over. You know, zero to a million, million to five million, uh, five million to 20 million. These are really big, important hurdles that sometimes can be so difficult just to get the growth model together. Uh, in the business model together that sometimes we forget that as we cross these thresholds, there are also new compliance requirements. I, I think the 50 employee uh, line is a good one for a few reasons. Um, uh, it certainly depends on your business, certainly depends on your industry. But if you just take $100,000 in revenue per employee times 50 employees, that's that's a $5 million business. Uh, and, and coincidentally, I, I just if you talk to entrepreneurs, that $5 million mark can be a hard threshold to cross. There's so many things that have to happen. Uh, you can't get there through just your Rolodex alone. You can't get through there, there through just a couple of key customers. You really have to have a bona fide business with grown up mature business processes in place to break that threshold. And that's why I think we wanna focus so much today because we know entrepreneurs are focused on how do they get over that threshold that we want them to also understand the compliance requirements that will come inevitably with that. So great guest, perfect guest to unpack this topic today. Uh, Brian Schenker, he's an attorney with the Long Island, New York office of Jackson Lewis. Brian's practice focuses on representing employers in a wide range of workplace matters, as well as preventative advice and counseling. Brian has extensive experience defending class and collective action lawsuits under federal and state wage and hour laws. He has successfully defended wage and hour audits conducted by the U.S. and New York State Departments of Labor. And Brian regularly handles cases before courts and administrative agencies involving claims of discrimination, sexual harassment, and retaliation. Brian, welcome back to the show. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay. we got a lot to unpack here. Uh, I, I think maybe uh, if you ask entrepreneurs, business owners, when you hit 50 employees, probably the biggie uh, that, that people think about is the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, right? So... <laughs> Let's maybe start, you know, definition of ACA. Uh, I think everybody gets what the Affordable Care Act is in, in, in general, but what does it mean specifically for employers and what is magical about this 50 employee mark? Right, Mike. So, yeah, absolutely is. And, you know, I, I always say, right, when you have that first employee, that's a, that's a big mark is all of a sudden you have policies, requirements, things like that. And as you grow, right, 50 is is one of those big ones. So, you know, under ACA, uh, most of the statutes, you know, the legislation's requirements uh, for employers apply to those businesses with 50 or more uh, full-time or full-time equivalents. Uh, ACA, right, that's the uh, 2010 legislation that essentially imposes penalties on employers, these over 50 employees, 
Uh, if they don't offer health insurance uh, or health coverage, uh, that meets certain standards, minimum value and affordability. Uh, so really, you know, I just we just want to touch on uh, three things today for uh, for employers uh, on ACA, right? Number one, how to know if your business is uh, subject to ACA, right? Whether you have those 50 employees, what are the requirements if you are an applicable large employer, and then you know, penalties for noncompliance. Uh, so let's let's start on the on the how do we calculate 50? Because it, interestingly, there's a there's a handful of laws we're going to unpack today that uh, 50 is the magic number, but not 50 employees isn't always 50 employees, as the case may be, right? So, <laughs> so what does it mean to have 50 qualifying employees uh, for ACA? Right, right. So yeah, and ACA is certainly one of those that counts employees a little differently than most other statutes we deal with. Uh, so right, with, with ACA, what we're dealing with is counting full-time employees and full-time equivalents. Uh, and we're looking at the, uh, the previous year typically is how we're, how we're calculating this. So, you know, for, it's, it's a pretty straightforward uh, calculation, right? We count all our full-time employees, right? Those are employees working at least 30 hours a month and we count them all up. That 30 period. a month or per week? Uh, per month. Sorry. Uh, yeah. 30 hours per month. Uh, and then we next look at our full-time equivalents, right? So a full-time equivalent to calculate those, we total up all the hours worked by part-time employees, right? Those working less than 30 hours a month. And we, you know, we add those up for each employee, uh, and we divide that total by 120. Uh, then what we do uh, we take the full-time employees plus the calculated full-time equivalents, and we determine the average number of empl employees, uh, you know, full-time and full-time equivalents per month uh, over the prior year. And companies with an average of 50 or more are considered a applicable large employer. So it, it's important to remember for ACA purposes, right, you could have 20 or 30 full-time employees and a bunch of part-timers uh, and that could still get you over the threshold uh, for having to comply with uh, many of ACA's. Uh, Brian, let, let's go through some use cases. I think so just to, so everyone understands that, so that and I, and I, I asked the clarifying question on the, on the, on the front one, because I think it can trip people up, right? So a full-time, at least 30, you think 30 a week, that's a three quarter FTE, uh, but you're talking full-time. So am I correct in saying I could have, let's say I have a somewhat seasonal business that I have full-time employees, they work 40 hours a week, but in month number one, I'm ramping up, maybe it's a golf course. So maybe it's, I don't know, uh, March. And I got a few of my full-timers gonna, gonna start work, but maybe they're less than 30 hours for that month of March or April. Uh, then they're up to all kinds of hours, they're full-time employees. And come September, October, they start dipping back down. The 30-hour threshold is whether you count the front or end of that seasonal worker. Is that, is that the right way to think about that? Right, right. So you're looking at, right, whether they're working at least, you know, 30 hours in a month. And if they do, they'll be considered a full-time employee for that month, right? If, if yeah. they're working less than that, uh, then you would calculate, you know, them under the, you know, part-time, you know, the full-time equivalent. 
scenario. Uh, you know, there is one thing to mention, Mike, because you, you, of course, bring up good, uh, good use uh, cases, that there is uh, a special rule for seasonal workers, right? There's an exemption. exemption. So employers, uh, you know, may not be an, a large employer under ACCA if they employ, employ more than 50 full-time employees um, for only 120 days or fewer during the calendar year. So seasonal businesses, you might be able to uh, avoid ACCA's requirements if you, you know, only employ those full certain full timers for those, you know, 120 days or, or less. And then if right. you do, then you're looking at it as a uh, full time equivalent. And so maybe I shouldn't have used seasonal employment because there are special exemptions for seasonal, right? Right. Um, in, in that case, the golf course would probably uh not qualify because it's a big long season but if you're running a, a spirit halloween pop-up store that's uh, open for you know 45 60 days a year right might be a different different scenario exactly so wh- where does that uh 30 hours a month rule generally get people is it pro- it's probably has to do with more like let's say you're in growth mode your business is growing you're adding employees it's which month of the year are you adding to the calculation is that right yeah, exactly. So it's really a month by month look back. And so, right, typically, you know, you hire exempt salaried employees, right? They're going to be full time employees, right? They're working more than 30 hours. And a lot of hourly employees, too, will meet that 30 hour, uh, um, you know, threshold as well uh, per week. So, again, you know, it's uh it's a little bit of math. Uh, the good thing is it's backward looking. So you, you know, look back at the, uh, you know, you can look back at a previous year and, you know, if, you know, if you're close, then obviously you might need to get some, uh, you know, legal advice on whether it applies or not. Right. Because it is a, uh, there are some, you know, financial burdens uh, in a, complying with ACA. So, you know, if you're close, you definitely want to figure that out. But oftentimes it's quite clear whether an employer is you know, falling well below or, or well above that, that 50. And so just a, a couple more clarifications I want to draw, because I think this is really important. Um, the, the part-time, the full-time equivalency test. So you, you add up the number of hours they worked per, per month divided by 120 because 120 would be uh, uh, call it three quarters of it, it's, it's 75% of four 40 hour work weeks, right? Exactly. Okay. And, and so if they, if they fall below above, how, how does, how does it get, does that calculation work? Cause I want, what I want people to get here is just because they are perhaps below the, the 120 hours per month test, could you have a thousand of them? And then you still don't you're, you you don't have to uh, comply with ACA or or, or how, do, how how does all that work? Right. So so yeah, you, for your non full time employees, what you basically do you lump them together and you just add up you know all the part time hours worked uh, for you know each month in the prior calendar year, right? So you add all those hours of service up for the non full time employees up to a maximum of 120 per uh, employee. Uh, And then, you know, so you're not including, you know, potential, you know, overtime hours that may have been worked in a certain week or month. So capped at 120, and then you divide the 
total number of hours by 120. And whatever figure that is, that is your full-time equivalents, right? The, and those get added to your, you know, full-time employees. And that total, you know, if it's less than 50, you're not, uh, you're not subject to many of ACA's requirements. If it's over that, then you'd be an applicable large employer. So I, I won't attempt the math in my head, but basically <laughs> you might have, say, 51 employees, some full-time, some part-time, um, but it, doing that math on your part-time, the equivalency is probably going to work out to a little bit less than 50. You're not going to be required to comply. But if you have a lot of part-timers, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it's not true that you get to simply exclude those people who work less than 30 hours a week. That right. The more of them there are, you're still adding up the number of hours worked in a year divided by the number of people there were, and you're going to get a number. And if that number is north of 50, you must comply with all of it. Exactly. And I think probably the, the employers that need to look at this the most and, you know, it, it could be a close call are those with, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 employees where, you know, a good number of those are going to be full time. But, you know, if a lot of them are part time, then depending on the hours they work, you know, the calculation will tell us, you know, whether, you know, you have 50 full time, uh, 50, you know, full time equivalents. Right, right. And that answer is your answer and answered my next question, which was going to be, does it matter what time of the year? Like um, it's so it's not the case that if I have 49 full time employees all year and in December, I hire the 50th employee. That's not going to trigger because it's averaged across the entire year. Right. 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 You're looking uh, across right each month the, the prior year and then you're taking the monthly average. Right. Yeah. OK. All right. Very good. Um, so, so that, to me, that's the most important thing that employers got to understand is, uh, is the, is the calculation of full-time equivalency to calculate whether you must or must, or, or must comply or whether you don't have to, uh, or you're exempt. Um, once you understand that you must comply, what do employers need to understand? There are some very specific requirements uh, to, for compliance with this law. And then we'll uh, want everybody to understand that before we talk about the, the co consequence of not doing it. Right. And we'll, we'll hit on this, you know, very generally, this is, could obviously be a deep dive, but, uh, right. So the mandate, right. The employer mandate applies if you're an applicable large employer. So if you have those 50 full-time equivalents, you're an ALE, an applicable large employer, and your business is then required to offer health insurance to at least 95% of your full-time employees. That's both affordable and provides minimum value. Uh, and so that's just to clarify, because we've talked a lot about full-time and part-time, full-time equivalents. All of that is just for determining whether you're an ALE, an applicable large employer. Yeah. Assuming you're an applicable large employer, you are then only off. You only need to offer health uh, coverage to the full-time employees, right? You don't need to, even though the part-time equivalents, you know, the part-time full-time equivalents get added into the calculation to determine ALE status. They don't need to be offered the health insurance. So that that's uh, number one. One big thing to remember. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, and then what's the calculation to determine whether they're full-time then? Because it's different. Right. So then a full-time employee is someone who's going to be working over 30 hours per week. 
So those are right. Those are the people that you're offering uh, health insurance or you're required to under ACA or else you face penalties. Um, and so, so, so I think so. So it's the it's the FTE calculation that determines whether you're an ap- applicable large employer, an ALE. Once you have determined that you must comply with the Affordable Care Act, now you must offer it to all full time employees. A full time employee is anybody who works more than thirty hours per week. How is that calculated? Because the number of hours worked per week could go up and down. There's there's all kinds of variables there. What, what period of time? Is that calculated? T- take us through all that. Yeah, so that that's just generally going to be, you know, obviously, right. You can't look at the, you know, the present month, but right, it's going to be a look back to, you know, these employees, and right, it's it's looking, you know, uh, right at that average of uh, uh, of hours, right. So it's similar to what we're looking back in the first instance as to the number of hours, right, and, you know, whether they're a full-time employee. So that should generally be um, similar when you're looking at who you're going to actually need to offer the coverage to. Got it. Okay. Um, and then, and then, look, you know, there, there are two main requirements. We can't go into them so much today given, you know, the time, but coverage needs to be affordable, right? So there are several yeah. safe harbors for this in terms of how to offer affordable coverage. Uh, the, the real key is, looking at the various safe harbors, the rate of pay uh, safe harbor, the federal poverty level and W-2 wages. Those are the three ones. And so the idea is understanding how you're, you know, which of those will be most beneficial to your business, depending on different types of business. uh, Some some of those safe harbors can be better than others. Uh, But once you use one, you're stuck with it, I believe for at least a year. So it's good to figure out how you're going to make that coverage affordable. And you and I, you and I covered this in a, in a, in a separate show. I would encourage uh, everybody to hop on the website, hop on the YouTube channel, or wherever, wherever podcast, wherever you consume this show. Uh, and if you want more details on, on the two tests for what coverage of, of uh, value, uh, uh, I'm losing again. It's minimum, minimum value. value. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, all, we, there's an hour worth of content just on that. We probably won't go deeper here. Um, what other requirements? I, I know there's a reporting requirement. So is it the, it's the, it's the coverage itself and whom you must extend that coverage to right. in those two tests? But then there's also the reporting. What Can you take us through the reporting and whatever other requirements there are? Right, exactly. So there, just as, you know, with most things under uh, the tax code, right, there are reporting uh, methods uh, or requirements to the IRS. So uh, there are uh, certain reports the, the, that each employer must provide, basically telling the IRS, you know, uh, the information about coverage offered and who is covered. Uh, and, you know, those are uh, yearly submissions by the employer and, you know, they're in addition to failing to provide, you know, uh, minimal, minimum essential coverage, you know, there are penalties for failure, you know, to file those forms with the IRS, you know, as there typically would be, uh, you know, for employers failing to file. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, penalties here can, you know, depending on what the violation is, they can be quite severe. Uh, so, you know, not an area where you want to, you know, take a shot and, you know, hope for the best, right? If you are an, an ALE, an applicable large employer, then you want to make sure you have the understanding of how to comply with, with the requirements of ACA. 
Yeah, and I'd say this isn't one you want to mess with. So it's, it's fortunately, it's a it's an annual filing, right? It's not like a 941 where you, the employer must file on a quarterly basis. This is an annual filing. Uh, it is, it's not just some report. It's a tax return that the employer mu must uh, 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 submit, the ACA uh, tax return. Um, but, it, but it uses all these annual calculations and it spells all the instructions out uh, uh, for you with, with that tax form. Um, anything else that people need to understand, Brian, I think uh, ACA is probably the number one. Our next one is going to be number two. Yeah, I, I think that pretty that, that covers what we can, I think, for ACA. And, and like you said, I, I'd recommend anyone uh, uh, take a look at our prior you know, webinar uh, addressing that because we, we were able to do a, you know, a bit of a dive into those requirements. I've uh, last thing I'll say on this one, I've, I've literally talked to business owners. Um, I had a conversation a week ago uh, with a business owner uh, that uh, – like you know what they, they got about uh, 40 employees going on 45 and they were very deliberate i don't want to get this thing over 50 employees because i don't want to have to provide health insurance at you know perceived cost a couple questions in uh 80 maybe 90 percent of their workforce is part-time like do the calculation here you got a lot of headroom before you're gonna have to comply with this if i was you i'd, I'd focus on growing your business you get to 50 ftes in your business you're going to have more than enough money to be able to have the resources to comply with this thing. It'll be well worth the trade-off. So my, my personal encouragement would be don't be scared by this. Be aware of it. Understand the calculation requirements of how you qualify. And you might have more headway than you think you do with the ability to grow your business, thus creating the revenues that can pay for any incremental costs you might incur. Anything you'd want to put a bow on that? Yeah, I, I think... Right. Reaching that level, it's a good problem to have, provided you know that there are compliance issues that you need to tackle that, that you previously yeah. didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Right. OK. Uh, next one, uh, the Family Medical Leave Act. So this is another one of those. Uh, uh, there are different there's different numbers, 50 employees, 20 employees. When do I when, when must I comply? When must uh, when don't I have to comply? Right. Take us through the employee count requirements for FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act? Sure. So for employer coverage, uh, the employer is uh, bound by to, uh, you know, FMLA if they employ more than 50 employees within 75 miles of the work site. Uh, and that would be during any 20 work weeks in the current or preceding year. So let's break that down real quick, right? So this doesn't necessarily mean that any company with more than 50 employees is subject to FMLA, right? Those 50 employees need to be within 75 miles of, of a work site, right? So if you have, you know, 25 employees, uh, you know, in California, another 20 uh, in Denver, and then another 20 uh, out here in New York, you know, you have 60 employees, but none of those uh, you have no work site where there are 50 employees or more within a 75 mile radius. So it's important to understand there's a geographical uh, part of this test. And maybe, uh, maybe to explain why that's important, give a 30 second of what FMLA is and, and therefore how that ties back. Right. So FMLA passed in the early 90s, I want to say 1993. 
Uh, and it allows employees to take 12 weeks of unpaid but job protected leave uh, for their own medical reasons or to care for you know, sick family members. And so that's you know, 12 uh, weeks you know, in each year. Uh, or, you know, in a 12 month period. So, you know, again, when we talk about FMLA, it provides, you know, this big leave benefit. Uh, and so the idea is it's designed for bigger employers who might reasonably be able to, uh, you know, deal with those types of absences that, uh, you know, uh, they're not gonna, uh, you know, the government isn't necessarily mandating on smaller employers. Uh, and so, again, just like ACA, you know, it's looking back, right? So you can look at uh, the number of employees per year in the prior year, but you can also look, at, you also look in the current year. So if you hit 20 weeks of 50 employees or more within those 75 mile radius, uh, you know, in the prior year, current year for 20 weeks, that then you're bound by the FMLA. Um, right, right. And so- And just, so everybody understands kind of the why here, right? So think think back early '90s. Uh, this was early Clinton administration. Not that that matters, but just that, that's the, that's the timing. And um, the the goal here was to just basically protect people's jobs if they had if they were sick, or if they had to like take care of a, a, a an elderly parent or a sick child, that their job would be protected. There was no expectation that they that they would get paid for that leave, but that you couldn't lose your job. The carve out for the below 50 employees is because there was an acknowledgement. Hey, if you're a small business, if you're if you're a trucking firm and you've got an office manager who is also your dispatcher and you've got nine over the road truck drivers in uh, your your dispatcher office manager goes out. You can't you're, you can't live 12 weeks without someone in that seat. So as a small business. You're going to probably have to find someone to replace, and it doesn't mean that you're cruel-hearted and don't want to protect that job, that person's job. Many business owners will find a way to do exactly that. Um, but it was an acknowledgement that smaller businesses, it would be too much of a hardship to guarantee that person's job. If you're over 50 employees, whether you agree with it or not, the determination is that okay, you're big enough, you have enough resources that you can uh, uh, keep this person's job safe. Unless, to your opening statement, Brian those locations are far enough apart from each other that they, tr that they truly stand, uh, act as standalone businesses, right? Because if you think about 1993, the work from home movement was not what it is today, right? In some businesses there, you know, if you work at a restaurant, there's no such thing as work from home. You gotta cook the food, you gotta serve customers face to face. And, but if you're one location, more than 50 employees, you have a bigger pool of talent to draw from to offset someone while they're on leave. But if you have lots of employees at disparate locations, they can't fill in for each other. So that I just want people to understand the why behind that question. Yeah, absolutely. And you and you hit on one point when we're talking about, uh, you know, employer coverage, uh, remote work, right? So what do you how do you count remote workers? Uh, and, and I think um, that's a great question that wasn't necessarily considered in 93. Right. But what the FMLA says is that you include, you know, remote employees for whatever office location that they report to or receive assignments from. Uh, so it's important to make sure if you're a company with uh, a good number of remote workers that 
they don't get lost in your calculation of 50 employees for FMLA purposes, right? Even though they're not at a specific location, they're going to be counted towards one of those and you could hit the 50. Yeah. So if you're, if you're a, a white collar company, software development, accounting services, business services, whatever it is, maybe you're at uh, 45 employees that work in your say Dallas office, but you've got 10 other employees that work around the country. If they receive their assignments for work from the Dallas headquarters office, then you're, that puts you at 55 employees. You must comply. Am I thinking about that right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, there, and look, in talking about then, you know, moving towards com compliance, um, I mean, look, there, before you get to compliance, right, there are a number of bases for FMLA leave, right? As we mentioned, it can be, you know, for the serious health condition of the actual employee, uh, but there, it can be family members, right? It can be for, yeah. uh, you know, to care for, you know, a son or daughter, uh, right, a newborn child. It can be, uh, to care for a spouse or, you know, a parent or, you know, that type of family member with a serious health condition. Uh, it can also come from, you know, a care for a covered service member, right? So there are various ways this, uh, that, you know, covered leave arises uh, under the FMLA. And so, uh, you know, maybe, Brian, maybe, maybe not listing all of them out and maybe you can, but, uh, can you explain qualifying events? So you, you, you gave some of the underlying reasons, and I think truly these are qualifying events, but what I, I want people to understand that it is a qualifying event. It's not, hey, you know, this person is a good friend. They're, they were like an uncle to me when I was a kid, and, they, and so um, I, I need to be there for them now. Noble, but maybe not protected under the law. Can, can you speak to the to – the, the best you can, the lines in the sand, so yeah. to speak, around qualifying events. Absolutely. So we'll start first, you know, the own the employee's own, you know, serious health conditions. So again, you know, we're talking about the employee being unable to perform the functions of the job, right? This is yeah. not like an ADA type leave where they can only, you know, there's one essential function of the job they can't perform, but they can do it all. You know, they can do their, everything with an accommodation. Now, this is a situation where the person cannot perform the job uh, and leave is necessary. So, again, these are, you know, th these are not your, you know, ordinary everyday conditions like a flu, uh, you know, a routine dental problem, an earache. You know, th those are not what we're talking about for FMLA leave. Uh, for for the own person, and so then look to care for the employee, the employee's spouse, son, daughter, or parent with a serious health health condition. We're talking about the same type of thing. Uh, and then look, uh, as I mentioned before, you can take FMLA for the birth of a son or daughter, and to care for a newborn. Uh, similarly, for the placement uh, of a son or daughter, you know, uh, for adoption, right? So it, it definitely views adoption and birth the same way. Uh, and then again, I, I mentioned service members, right? So if there's, uh, you know, uh, an exigency arising out of the, you know, employee's um, you know, spouse, son, daughter, you know, immediate family member who is a military member uh, and they're on cover duty, right? That, that's something where, right, if I, my, my son needs to go, you know, for duty and I need a couple of days off to, you know, get everything together, help them, you know, get get settled and get set you know that that's what the fmla leave there is for um 
And Maybe so, last question. Yeah. Go, go ahead. You were going to say? No, no. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah so a, a thing about time, we we got a bunch of them to get through in, in our in our hour here. Um, maybe the last big question I have. So we know it requires a qualifying event. You kind of walk through the calculation of, of what 50 employees means and on a per location basis. Um, the law says that you need to guarantee this person's quote unquote job. That's not, that's not, a, can, can you, can you explain for folks, what does the law literally say? Mm-hmm. Um, that was my words that guarantees their job. That's not what I'm sure it says in the statutes. Um, but what does it literally say? And, and, and do you have to, where I'm going with it, do you have to truly retain that person's exact job or is there an equivalency? Is it the duties they're performing? Is it what you paid them, but you could stick them in a completely different role? Because I'm envisioning someone could go on leave. You have every intention of bringing that person back on. The person you replaced them with, they might be better. Are you obligated to then fire that person to bring the other person back? Help us understand that. Right. So, yeah, so, look, you know, it's a, so the FMLA is a bit different than the, the ADA, right? So, you know, other, you know, the ADA leave, you know, bring them back, you know, you want to bring them back to, you know, similar roles, similar, you know, wages, similar benefits. Um, you know, that's under, let's say, the ADA. Under the FMLA, it's a bit more strict that they should be returned to the same position they were in, right? And so, yeah, the, the excuse that, yeah, we brought in, you know, someone else who did the position that much better, um, you know, that's not going to f- uh, necessarily fly as a reason that you cannot return the person to their original position. Now, there might be other reasons that someone can't be returned to their same position, right? You know, for instance, in the time period they're out, there's a reorganization that, you know, for instance, you know, a department is eliminated or a position is eliminated or, you know, or just some some other type of restructuring. Uh, You know, in that case, right, I mean, if it's impossible to bring the employee back to their same position, then you're almost going about it the same way as we would under the ADA, that you're then going to bring them back to, you know, the most similar position you can without, you know, a a dip in benefits, uh, you know, seniority, you know, uh, pay, things like that. So, yeah, you want to bring them back to the same position. That's the idea. And look, you know, part of it is at the outset of FMLA leave, uh, an employer can get a medical certification. Uh, and that would be something that, you know, the employee and their doctor, uh, you know, fill out. And so at the outset of FMLA leave, the company should have a good idea of what is, you know, the return date of, you know, whether this is something where the employee expects to use all 12 weeks or is it something that's just going to last for one or two weeks or is it intermittent leave, right? There's intermittent. I was going to ask you about intermittent leave. So, um I generally always on this show try to give benefit of the doubt to the employer because I know how hard it is to understand all the laws and comply with all of them. Um, uh, and for sure, there are some employers who might, you know, abuse this. Um, I think we all have heard horror stories where some employees might abuse this uh, intake leave um, when maybe 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 it was inappropriate for them to take leave. I'll, I'll leave it at that uh, and puts the burden on the employer to still keep their job open for them. Um, does it have to be sequential? I know the answer, I think the answer is no here, but is it sequential? Is it 12 within a calendar year, 12 within a rolling 12 months? Uh, 
what about the employee who, you know, takes their 12 weeks, they work for a couple of weeks, and then, you know, lo and behold, they need another FMLA leave. How, how does all that work with a sequential right. uh, time off during what time period, et cetera? Yeah, great, great questions. And look, these are things that employers should know and need to know, right? Whether or not they think there's, you know, potential abuse of, of FMLA uh, leave. But, right, so going back a step, right, there are 12 weeks and there are various ways an employer can calculate that, right? You can use the calendar year, a fixed 12-month period, such as, you know, the based on the anniversary date or a fiscal year, um, a rolling 12-month period looking backwards, uh, a 12-month period going forward. And so, again, you know, the employer should, uh, you need to decide which one of these 12-month uh, periods you're going to use. And while it might not sound it, it is very important which one you use because each method ha is you know, more or less beneficial to the employer. So, you know, for instance, um, you know, the 12 month period, the, the rolling 12 month period, typically most advantages employers because it looks back, you know, you look backward 12 months from the date the employee first takes, uh, takes right. leave, right? As opposed, let's say you do the calendar year, let's say the employee takes 12 month, 12 weeks from, you know, September to December, now, as of January 1, they have another 12 months, uh, it's not 12 months, 12 weeks available to them, and they could yeah. immediately take another 12 weeks. So then you have an employee who's taken 24 straight weeks of FMLA. So, yeah. yes, it, number one, yes, it really does matter, you know, what measuring period you do for the 12 months. Uh, and then, yeah, getting back to the type of leave, you know, it, it, whether it's intermittent or it's, you know, one or two days a week. You know, it's really dependent on, you know, what the, the doctor and there's a certification form that employer can use where they'll get in medical information about, you know, what is needed. And so, you know, look, these, you know, it's, it's a, oftentimes less uh, burdensome for an employer to deal with an employee who's going to be out six weeks, right? And they, they know they have someone to replace, you know, for six weeks. As opposed to someone who, you know, every Thursday they're taking the day off because that's the day they need to, you know, assist a family member or go to their own doctor's appointments. You know, and those are the ones where, right, someone's it's intermittent leave. It's going to become more difficult to actually hire someone to fill that role during those intermittent leaves. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, it's not realistic to so. You know, those are the things that, you know, companies need, need to understand, you know, what is available to employees so they can plan, you know, number one, both give the employee what they're entitled to and then plan how they're, you know, you can operate your business while complying with the FMLA. And, and this is a, just a perfect example where don't, A, you need a handbook. You need a handbook and B, don't Google it because you, you might just read it and say, oh, the, you know, for the, for the year. Well, what does the year mean? In a, in a quarter law, you're going to have to define what the year means. Is it rolling 12 months? Is it calendar year? Is it a fiscal year? I mean, you, you need to define these things. So uh, we'd love to be the company that helps you build your handbook, whether you whether it's us, somebody else, you do it yourself. Uh, know that it, there, it's a lot more nuanced than you perhaps think, but you got to have a handbook that defines these things. Yeah. Um, last thing, maybe we talk on... on uh, uh, FMLA. What what are the consequences? What what's 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 the price tag for fines? Uh, uh, does it usually 
Does noncompliance, when you're caught, does it show up as a fine? Does it show up uh, as a lawsuit? What, what does that look like? So, yeah, it's typically going to show up as a lawsuit similar to, you know, another type of discrimination lawsuit. And so yeah. it's similar to those others. Right. So, you know, for there's an ex- right. You have an employee who isn't returned to work and they're fired. And right. So that employee could have a back pay or front pay uh, claim. Uh, they're going to have, you know, get their get their attorney's fees. Uh, the, the court can award liquidated damages, which are equal to the wages that are owed to them. Uh, there's potential uh, personal liability for owners of companies here. Uh, and so, yeah, it, look, where we often see the biggest problems with FMLA, uh, you know, violations are, you know, sloppy administration, right? You know, there's a lot going on here. You have to m- monitor the 12 weeks they're entitled to each year based on whatever calendar, uh, you know, whichever 12 months you're using. So, you know, you the company should have a streamlined process for, you know, once a uh, a request is made and granted, right? The employer needs to make sure that the leave is carried out, uh, time is properly tracked, right? If you don't track the 12 weeks, you might end up giving them 13 or 14 weeks that uh, the employee is not actually entitled to. Um, And, you know, really one of the biggest ones is the initial issue of, understanding whether the leave that the employee is requesting is covered or not, right? Because as with many leaves of absences, there's no uh, magic words, right? So the employee gives you a reason. If it sounds like it might be something that would be covered by FMLA, then what you do, you you give them a form, right? You give them the form to, you know, to fill out and you consider then whether it actually is FMLA qualifying. Uh, but it's important to consider that. Um, and look, uh, I, I think, you know, investigating those dubious absences that, that you mentioned, uh, Mike, earlier, that's, that's, never, that's not necessarily a bad idea. Uh, you know, some employees will use these types of leaves to take, you know, every Monday off or every Friday off or, um, you know, the day before or after holiday weekend. So, you know, companies can look for patterns. Uh, I've had instances where, you know, private investigators were, were hired. But what, what I would caution, too, is that if you're an employer getting that far into looking into uh, potential abuse, likely you should seek outside help, you know, ashore from ashore, you know, from an HR professional, from, a, you know, an attorney, uh, to guide you the right way. Because if something's that serious, you probably shouldn't be going at it alone. Yeah, and I, and I just want to reiterate, you got to have an employee handbook that spells all this out, part of the onboarding, and perhaps uh, a best practice would also be ongoing annual recertification acknowledgement that uh, of receipt and understanding of all these things can, can go just a long way. Because uh, I think a lot of times these things you give benefit of the doubt to the, both the employer and the employee. It's it's just a misunderstanding of what it even means, right? Um, and and each side feeling victimized by the other. When if you just would have sat down and explained the rules, uh, so both parties understood, you wouldn't have had an issue in the first place. And and I in a last point, what you said I think is hundred percent right. And this is where it could really bite employers. It's not the happy employee. Uh, who who is you know highly productive and part of your culture 
and has a has a life event that you have this problem with. It's the person who goes out on leave and uh, says that they had a qualifying event. You didn't have documentation. Maybe you didn't even ask them if it was a qualifying event. You didn't explain, no, this actually doesn't qualify. You're not eligible. They just go in so the employer fires them. Maybe it's week one. Maybe it's week 11 and a half. And what does that disgruntled employee do? They call an attorney. And lo and behold, you're neck deep in a lawsuit, right? Okay. Um, FMLA, ACA, those are the two really, really big ones we, uh, we appropriately spent most of our time on today. I'm going to really speed us through the next few topics here. Um, but a lot of people don't realize you cross 50 employees, there's a new threshold for reporting with the Equal Employment Opportunity, right? The EEO1 report. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so just real quick, right? The EEO1 report is a compliance survey that's done by the EEOC that requires employers to provide certain employment data uh, to the EEOC concerning uh, race, ethnicity, gender, uh, and job categories of their employees. Uh, employer coverage on this. So private employers who are subject uh, to Title VII uh, must file this annually if they have uh, over 100 employees or if they're owned by uh, an, a, a company affiliated with another one uh, that has over 100 employees. Uh, there's also a requirement that brings us down to 50 employees. Uh, most federal contractors, right, so you have a contract with the government, you're going to be required to uh, file an EEO-1 report if you have at least 50 employees. Um, and so, you know, look, it's a, is, that, is that for only 50 or greater if you do business with the government? In the right, that's just, for the, that's just for the federal contractors. That's right. Yeah. And um, so over 50 employees, is there, and, and you're all maybe business to consumer, business to business, no federal contracts, no subsidies of any kind from a from a government agency as part as a part of your revenue stream. Do you are, are you required to comply with EEO one reporting? So no, if you're under a hundred employees and you're private, then no. If you're over a hundred employees and private, then then you'd likely be uh, filing the EEO one report. Okay, so uh, we'll keep today's topic on fifteen over. That uh, that assumes not one hundred and over. Just know that if you do hit that threshold, God bless you. Congratulations on building a, a successful business. But again, the bigger you grow, the more compliance requirements you're going to face. And that's not some optional survey that you get in the mail. There's teeth for non-compliance with the EEO one if you're required to to provide it. So right, uh, yeah, exactly. Knowing it's knowing for private, it's greater than 100 employees. It's only 50 plus when it's government contracts. I, I suspect people doing business in that world understand a whole other realm of compliance requirements that comes with doing business with the government anyway. They should. They should. All right. So next one I want to talk uh, is is state laws, and you know, uh, well, we could talk forever on this one. Um, ACA, FMLA, um, and to some extent, even oh, you know, I got one other one before I go to the state laws. Form fifty five hundred. A lot of people, I think, don't even know what Form 5500 is. Can you right. explain that? Yeah, and real quick, right. So Form 5500, that is uh, under uh, ERISA. And 
Uh, that is a form that, you know, I'm not going to give a whole ERISA primer here, uh, but right, that's a form that, uh, yeah, is required to be filled out by um, companies that have ERISA plans. So that could be, you know, a, a retirement plan like a 401k or a uh, health insurance plan, right? Those are all governed by ERISA. Uh, and so, right, if you, uh, your company has, uh, uh, at least uh, 100 employees, and you're going to need to fill out this full form. And it, uh, it provides information, not necessarily on the employees, uh, but on the plan, right? So about, uh, uh, you know, the financials, the, you know, and various, uh, you know, uh, coverage and expenses and operations. And it's actually a form that the DOL then puts up online, and it's available publicly. So if you've ever uh, Google Form 5500, you, you can find it for, you know, covered companies. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, information about their plan, right? It's not information about employee, you know, specific employee information. And so um, over 100 employees, you must fill out the 5500. Under, uh, there's the simple form. Who, right. who, must, who must complete? Is it all employers uh, who provide a qualifying benefit? Yes, I believe. Yeah, I believe that all plans that at least all all companies that have a plan under ERISA are at least required to fill out the uh, the short form version of the fifty five hundred. Okay, and so the reason we bring this up today, so the topic of today is uh, laws you got to comply with over fifty employees. This one technically, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong. This one technically is not a fifty plus employee requirement. But because it's governed by ERISA, which is the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, right, um, has to do with benefit plans, 401k, other retirement uh, vehicles, health insurance, dental, et cetera. Because ACA does have that 50 employee requirement, that's also commonly the line in the sand where employers start to offer benefits, pretty, pretty common under 50 employees, you got an entrepreneur, they're scraping by and they're, they're grinding, trying to grow their business and they don't have the margin to pay for uh, the uh, benefits, right? And so now all of a sudden, now they're legally required to, okay, now I'm in the benefits game. And so if you are providing those qualifying benefits, maybe at 20 employees, maybe 10 employees, maybe five employees, right? God bless, that's awesome. Um, you must comply and do at least the short form 5500 to make sure that your plans are complying with the law, right? Um, the, the, just the reason we stuck it into this show is because it's usually around that 50 employee mark that employers start to offer benefits. Am I, am I yeah. stating that correctly? Yeah, you're spot on, right? So if you're at 50 full-time equivalents, then you're offering, uh, you know, health coverage under uh, ACA, which comes under ERISA. So, right, you, depending on number of employees, you're either filing, you know, the, the regular form or the short form. And right, and as companies get bigger, right, you might be offering, uh, you know, 401k. Uh, you might be offering a 401k even before you hit 50 employees. Uh, so again, you know, that's something that can bring you under, you know, the ERISA regulations. Okay, so we talked Affordable Care Act, FMLA, EEO1 reporting in the Form 5500. Let's spend a couple minutes talking about state laws. Um, and this is what I've referred to before as the Cambrian explosion of HR laws, right? 
If you remember your middle school earth science, this is when the fossil record went from like a small number of uh, 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 life forms to just exploded from just shelled creatures in the sea to uh, mammals and plants and all kinds of birds, and all kinds of kinds of stuff. Right. So there's this giant explosion of, of life forms. I feel like we're in this Cambrian explosion period right now for, for HR laws, where it's not just the big federal laws. Uh, you know, we talked about a couple of FMLA, early 90s, Affordable Care Act 2010, you know, big federal laws coming along once a decade or so. Um, now, all these things kind of have a life of their own at the state level and increasingly counties, cities, local municipalities. How would you guide employers? We, there's no way we can list them all. How how do you guide employers to be thinking about compliance when you hit this, you know, 50 employee threshold, so to speak? Uh, is there is there in regards to state laws? Yeah. So I mean, I just think it's so important to understand that you know the federal law is not where you know all your company's you know obligations and requirements are going to come from. Uh, and that oftentimes, you know, companies, you know, will look to someone, you know, that might know, you know, nationally, you know, what's the federal law say. And, and it's very important to know that. But you need to make sure that, right, the, you know, the, the, lo the locality, right, the city, the state, you know, they, and they all might have laws, right, governing the same discrimination or sex harassment, right? It all might be on the same topic. But number one, there are going to be differences in terms of coverage, right? So whereas, you know, the FMLA might not apply to, you know, uh, employers with less than 50 employees in a 75 mile radius, you know, there could be a state leave law that provides similar type of leave for, you know, with companies with very few employees. So it's really important to understand that because, you know, number one, there could be just completely different laws at your state level but it can also be very similar laws that just kick in, you know, when your business, when you're a smaller business than, you know, what the federal levels might be. Uh, so re real, real important to know those. Um, and again, I think, Mike, it, it, the only way that, uh, you know, companies can really understand, you know, everything that they have to comply with is by looking elsewhere. It's, it's really uh, come to a point, as you said, where, you know, the web, this tangled web of laws we have, you know, for employers to comply with, it's very difficult, especially because as we've seen in the last few years, the laws change uh, at the state and city level much quicker than at the federal level. Uh, and so, you know, we're always talking about handbooks and, you know, just because your handbook was compliant last year, I mean, in a state like New York, it's not gonna be, client, uh, be compliant in the following year, right? Because these local laws you know, things just move quicker at the state and local levels than they do at the federal level. So you really have to understand, see what the changes are. And look, one great way of doing so is reading the news, understanding what's coming down before it actually does. So you have time to prepare and, uh, you know, make changes that, that might, you know, benefit your business. Yeah, I mean, just an example, um, 725 has been the you know minimum wage federally forever, right? There are 155 unique minimum wage jurisdictions. 33 states make up 155 unique jurisdictions. So of the 33 states, 25, maybe it's 26, have updated their minimum wage this year already. And the rest, 
some of them actually have employee size requirements. So minimum wage, if you're, uh, uh, you know, uh, is, is X up to 20 employees, it's Y greater than 50 employees. And yeah. so uh, some, I'm seeing this trend, and I don't think there's tons of them, but there is a trend where uh, whether you do or don't provide benefits, whether you're over or under this employee threshold, literally changes your minimum wage, right? So lots and lots of laws that are local, more than we could ever probably try to capture in this show. I think the message is, You've got to have a mechanism to understand those local laws. Certainly, this is what we do for a living. This is how we help small employers get their head around this, create that handbook to help keep them compliant. But again, whether you're using us or somebody else, uh, I wouldn't rely solely on Google. You, I mean, Google's great uh, for perhaps components thereof. Um, but you have to have an authoritative source that understands the law that then per- puts that in the handbook that you communicate regularly with your employees. Brian, we've only got a couple minutes here. Is there anything you'd want to say in closing for just general guidance for small business owners and and small businesses to stay compliant with all these changes, especially in the context of, okay, we got a good business going. We're growing. We're, we're, We're tipping over that 50 employee mark. That probably means we're a $5 million growing business. We've just crossed a threshold that we should be celebrating. This is a good thing. Uh, what is what is your closing advice for employers uh, who cross this threshold? Yeah, well, I, I think two of the big points we, we were just uh, discussing, right? Uh, looking at the law and, you know, regularly, you know, looking at it so you know when there are, you know, changes in it. And then, right, establishing policies, right? Having your own handbook. That, that's so key. Um, I think those two are, you know, enormously important. It all starts with those written policies. And again, you know, some employers might look at compliance as a one size, you know, fit all type thing, but it really is not. And that is why, uh, you know, I know Mike, you know, when, when Assure, you know, helps a company with a handbook, uh, I know that, right, it's, it's tailoring it to the company's business that, you know, Look, for instance, the the Fair Labor Standards Act, the federal law, right? You can have employees clock out for their lunch breaks or you can have an auto deduct where, you know, the time is automatically deducted. Both both can be lawful under under the law, but you know, which one is the company going to go with? Right? So there's so there are a lot of choices that companies have, and I think it's that recognition that without looking into it without coming up with your policies and practices that you can't take the law and, you know, make it your own, so to speak, right? You, you can't right. do that unless you have, you understand what the law is, how it's being updated, you put it in writing, and then you examine, is this how we want the culture of our you know, workplace to, to go? Or do we want to have, you know, a different policy? And then, determining whether those are compliant, right? That That's really what it's all about. Yeah. Brian, important topics. Uh, to everyone who's approaching or has crossed that 50 employee threshold, uh, congratulations. And to everybody else, we're rooting for you and anything we can do to help you get there, uh, by all means, let us know. Brian, thanks again. Uh, and everyone else, until next week, thanks for coming. At Assure, we build human capital management software and services that help 90,000 companies like yours attract, develop, and retain great people. Our low upfront cost and affordable subscription model allow you to save cash to invest in things that drive growth, not overhead. 
To learn more about how Assure can help you claim up to $26,000 per employee with the Employee Retention Tax Credit, automate your payroll, and build productive teams that are compliant with ever-changing HR laws, visit AssureSoftware.com.